Take a network break. Welcome to our turkey trot through this week's IT news. We've got stories on Facebook, Apple, Fortinet, financial results from Cisco and NVIDIA and more. We're sponsored this week by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up and watch Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. This is an on-demand webinar where you'll hear from leading voices in networking and security and get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. You can sign up at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. And speaking of Palo Alto and SASE, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto about Secure Access Services Edge or SASE, where Palo Alto is making the case for why how the service is architected matters and makes a difference. If you're interested, you can check that out. And if you like Network Break, we've got a bunch of other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get to the news. At the Open Compute Summit earlier this month, Facebook announced new open switch designs that incorporate silicon from both Broadcom and Cisco systems. Which is interesting because up until now, Facebook has generally brought its switches to the Open Compute Foundation in the hope that other companies would buy the same hardware as Facebook and get critical mass and reduce its costs is the way we see it. Yes. Um, but this time, um, this is not just Broadcom Silicon, and in the past it has been other silicon. This time Cisco Silicon 1 ASICs get some street cred here, get, get some an airing, which is unusual. Uh, because Cisco was quite clear when Silicon One was released that it would only be selling the Cisco that Silicon in its routers and its high-end routers. So to see it pop up in top of rack switches sort of changes the tune a little bit, don't you think? It does. Yeah. So Facebook's talking about two new top of rack switch designs. One is based on the Tomahawk 3 ASIC from Broadcom and one is based on Cisco's uh, Silicon One ASIC. Facebook says they're using both in their data centers uh, with the switches assembled by Elastica. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. Though. Like Facebook is obviously keen to not buy switches manufactured by vendors per se, except it does. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I think that it's unusual here to see Cisco saying, yeah, we'll just sell our ASIC, but not even in our metal. It's going to be manufactured right. by Celestica. Now, the thing to probably note here is that Cisco gets Celestica to manufacture its own switches. It's one of the manufacturers that makes the switches that Cisco sells to its customers directly. And Facebook probably figures that it, it would much rather have them manufactured directly from the same manufacturer so that they can bring the whole thing under their existing processes. That doesn't mean that Facebook may not switch to buying Cisco switches in the future, but it is hard to see this as a big win for Cisco in, in my mind because they tell shareholders that their future is in, all in software and also that Cisco manufacturing is was a jewel of their crown, their ability to manufacture hardware in their supply chain. And um, it seems that Cisco's kind of realized that the world has changed and now they just have to sell whatever they can sell. Uh, but then again, Cisco is in the front door at Facebook, having been frozen out of Facebook for nearly a decade. They're finally there, and I expect they're going to try and land and expand the business, particularly um, in two places. Arista has been getting as much as 30% of its revenue from selling to companies like Facebook, mm -hmm. and uh, in particular, Facebook is one of Arista's biggest customers. And not only does Facebook use Arista switches straight up, Arista is actually making switches to Facebook's specifications. And it turns out, uh, according to Deloro, they believe that the majority of switches, uh, Arista switches that Facebook uses also runs Arista's EOS. Right. Uh, so Cisco can only sell the ASICs, but Arista can sell them an entire switch and their operating system, which sort of says something about the way that Facebook would regard Cisco. But then again, as we mentioned two weeks ago, we did say that Cisco Silicon One ASIC 
does seem to be competitively advantaged and has some capabilities. And maybe it's got very low power consumption and high performance compared to, say, the Broadcom switches. So maybe this is a representation of that. Yeah, I actually see this as a feather in Cisco's cap. Uh, gives Silicon One ASIC, as you mentioned, some street cred in the hyperscale market where it essentially has been a non-entity, particularly compared to Arista. It's likely that Cisco is probably not going to see significant revenues from this deal. You mentioned a mm. Delora article; they're saying less than fifty million in twenty twenty two, which is like change down the back of the sofa, right? For Cisco, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's not so much about the revenue. I think Cisco can leverage this in their marketing, like, hey, Facebook is trusting our silicon to build the metaverse. It can certainly tout this to its enterprise oh, customers. I don't think they get to say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook does not let companies go around and like, uh, Arista does not go around and say like, hey, Facebook is buying our switches. This is all secondhand, third in analyst said type stuff, right? I mean, I'm sure a salesperson walking up to a, an executive w would be happy to mention it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, Facebook yes, finding yes. out, yes. Mm -hmm. Three, I do think there is a key issue here and that is optical modules. Remember, Cisco did acquire a 400 gig uh, optical maker recently, and the stated purpose there was to be at the forefront of 400 gig. Uh, the article from Facebook clearly calls out that so far they're only at 200 gig and they're not at 400 gig yet, which is surprising given the level of hype around 400 gig from the marketing people. But mm -hmm. um, Cisco would be very keen to say to get these modules sold to companies like Facebook because the actual switch is less than 50% of the total price. Uh, over 50%, sometimes as much as 70% of a fully loaded switch is actually in the optical modules. And I think that's the prize here. Probably for uh, Cisco, yes. I mean, I think also getting that that foot in the door with a hyperscaler like Facebook is good for them because they can hopefully, uh, I assume they'll be turning around to others and saying, see what we're doing mm. uh, with Facebook and maybe well, take a look. it's important with Silicon to get scale. Like the more you yep. can make, the cheaper it gets. You can Absolutely. run a bigger order. So if Facebook's buying a sufficiently large quantity of these ASICs, there's definitely a win there, lowers the unit cost, and they can make more profits when they sell these things to other customers. Although I don't think at 50 million, it's going to be that significant. Um, but still, but I think the win here is that Cisco's through the door and Facebook's actually willing to make a statement saying, yes, we're buying that. Um, admittedly, this might be the only time they say it, but I think the prize here is the optical modules. Both Juniper and Cisco have 400 gig optical companies in addition to two or three others. And we're also seeing silicon photonics come down the pipe. So these embedded optical things where the next generation of ASICs will likely have lasers built in and the whole idea of the, how we fit SFPs will go away and be replaced by something else. And at that point, you've really got control of the customer again. Yeah. I think the other target for this announcement is Broadcom. Uh, Facebook is happy to let Broadcom know, hey, we've got a little bit more supplier diversity now. Uh, so maybe <laughs> that gives them a touch more leverage with Broadcom, given Broadcom's dominance of the uh, silicon market. Uh, so that's mm. good for Facebook and I think generally good for the industry overall. Yeah. So come, as part of the announcement, you're you're making me bring to the fore another point is that Facebook's FBOS, their own operating system, switch operating system, has now switched to using the switch abstraction interface. Whereas mm -hmm. up until now, they've been relying on the Broadcom proprietary API and they've now switched to SAI. So they can now abstract much further away from the silicon and that they don't have less reliance on one particular manufacturer, leaving them yes. open to not only Cisco, but any other silicon maker, Marvell, Mellanox, uh, NVIDIA, Mellanox, and so forth. Right, Anovium, everybody. Yeah. Anovium, yeah. You know, all the other players that are out there that Facebook hasn't been able to consider because they've been writing their operating system for the binary blob from Broadcom. And we did highlight that a while back. So maybe they're flexing their muscles. You might be right. 
Right. And it's also good again for Cisco also supporting side the switch abstraction interface because that also may make their silicon more appealing to other hyperscale and cloud providers as well. Microsoft particularly. I don't think AWS will ever care, but Microsoft, <laughs> and Microsoft Oracle and you know all of the other tier two players will look to this and go like, maybe we need to reevaluate. Right. Sai was a Microsoft initiative. Yeah. So that's definitely a, a big person there. All right. Plenty of links in the show notes. If you want to check it out, we'll move on. Fortinet has announced that its SD-WAN and next-gen firewall can run as a virtual instance within Azure's virtual WAN or VWAN offering. And for those who aren't aware, VWAN is essentially a networking gateway. It's just between uh, a customer's branch and HQ sites and Azure VNets and supports a variety of connectivity options like SD-WAN, IPsec VPNs, and Express Route. This feels late. Fortinet's SD-WAN is, is not the most innovative in the sense that it's not got these massive features and all these things. It's a very competent SD-WAN solution, but it's not exactly at the leading edge of the technology or doing something differentiated and different. And the fact that it's just reaching the Azure VWAN feels right on time for the company and the product that it has, but it does feel late compared to its competitors. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. It does feel a little bit late uh, for Fortinet. Um, although, you know, at this point, Azure VWAN is sort of uh, number two in the uh, public cloud market. So I'm sure they put their energies into AWS uh, and their transit gateway first. Uh, so mm -hmm. following up on VWAN makes sense. But yeah, they are behind. There's others already there, Cisco, Palo Alto, VMware, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you've got the network as a service providers like Aviatrix, Alkira, Prostimo, you know, whoever the hell else. There's lots of them. Uh, and they're all building overlay services as well that go into these services. So you actually have a wide range of choices, whereas... You know, two or three years ago, there was only a couple of vendors or maybe even just one that was actually embedded into this VWAN gateway and makes it a lot easier if it's all there than having to try and work around it like they did in the early days of SD-WAN. Yeah, we are seeing a battle shaping up between SD-WAN companies uh, positioning SD-WAN as sort of your cloud on-ramp and your multi-cloud overlay versus the folks you mentioned, Aviatrix, Akira, Alkira, Prosimo, and others who are essentially building cloud-native-based uh, multi-cloud overlay services. So that I think that's going to be the big cloud networking fight coming up. Yeah, be interesting to see how it goes. SD-WAN is still big uh, and still untapped. I don't think most companies have even got to SD-WAN yet, so... Right, which is why Fortinet is taking the opportunity to to maybe get ahead of where their customers are, even though they are behind their competitors in that if mm -hmm. you're looking to get into Azure and you've got branch offices that need to get to applications and services there, Fortinet now says, hey, we've got an easy way to tap into <laughs> VWAN for you. Has to be said, waiting for Microsoft to fix all the bugs and the problems in their product is not exactly a dumb thing. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> being a couple of years behind and letting somebody else work out all the problems might be a good choice. That's true. This is a fast following can also be an excellent strategy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Aruba Networks, they're an HPE company. They reported that an unauthorized external actor used an access key to get access to customer data stored in Aruba Central's cloud service. HPE says two types of data were exposed, telemetry data about Wi-Fi client devices and Wi-Fi client location data for a contact tracing service. Potential personal information was exposed, including client MAC addresses, device host names, and usernames. HPE says that only a very small amount of data, if any at all, was exfiltrated based on their analysis of logs. And the company says customers don't have to take any steps such as changing passwords, keys, or network configurations. So a small breach, but I think troubling for a couple of issues. One is that an external actor had access to a valid key. Apparently, mm -hmm. they had uh, access to it for 19 days before it rotated out of use. Well, on one hand, at least it rotated out. It wasn't like a persistent right. access. Yep. And yep. Uh, two, they discovered it. On the other hand, a little concerning where they're saying, we don't actually know what was taken. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, was my specific data exfiltrated? Unfortunately, we cannot determine this. 
because the and they say these days the repositories are far for streaming high volume learning data. We do not log individual file accesses, um, and they obviously don't seem to monitor their outbound again because of scale. This is another one of these times when the cloud has its advantages. The great one here is that it's not your fault. You can just blame Aruba and then put it on the back burner and say, so sad, too bad. Moving on. Uh -huh. I doubt anybody's going to care. Um, but if you actually cared about security, this is one of the this is the sort of time when you say, you know, if I was doing this on-prem, could I do it better? Would I be able to see data exfiltrated? Would I have been able to prevent this in some way? or to take proactively? And the answer is, who knows? Depends on your situation. <laughs> That's a definite, it depends answer, yes. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's a signal that cloud repositories are going to be the target of attack because that's where the data is. Uh, so when you're doing your due diligence uh, on your cloud providers and with, with so many organizations now relying on the cloud to do machine learning and analytics to provide value back to the customer, uh, that's where all the data is going. So you want to make sure that they have practices like key rotation, mm -hmm. very good access control, uh, and are able to respond to incidents like this. I noticed that it didn't say refund anywhere. Oh, no, never. No, it didn't say <laughs> like, yes, a refund would, uh, from a breach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it should really be in the, you know, if you're an enterprise, you should be saying, like, if you have a security breach, give me money back. You should be bleeding pain in. There's no pain here. Yes, a rube has been breached. Yes, they've announced it, you know. What's 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 the negative impact to the you know? There's no reason for them to bother fixing it or to be you know not to be highly motivated to the most senior levels to actually make a substantial change. There'll be some tweaks and you know internal changes and some embarrassment. But you know, as we always say about these SaaS breaches, nobody gets punished. Right. Uh, most breaches, nobody gets punished, SaaS mm -hmm. or otherwise. Yeah. In any case, just a reminder that you know cloud also has its issues, and you're not necessarily reducing risk. You're just shifting it to somebody else. So keep that in mind as you consider cloud strategies. All right, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE. That's Secure Access Services Edge. SASE Converge 2021. You can sign up to see an on-demand version of the event. You're going to hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder, Nir Zook, Gartner's VP and distinguished analyst, Neil McDonald, who's also considered one of the fathers of SASE, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. He's an early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow and NYSERA. You can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action. You can get details on the impact of SASE technologies and what they've made for organizations today, and you can learn about new innovations. So go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com if you want to register. That's sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to see an on-demand version of the event. Back to the news, Apple recently announced that it would support self-repair of two iPhone brands in the U.S. in early 2022 with Mac computers to follow. It said it would make manuals and Apple parts available to consumers who want to make their own repairs to displays, batteries, and cameras. Now, this is in response to uh, market pressures. There's been a substantial uh, community movement demanding that Apple make its products repairable um, because people feel that, you know, having to take things back to Apple and getting, you know, an Apple charges are pretty eye-watering premium to get to get its yep. get products repaired inside of its facilities. Um, and people are saying, why can't third parties repair this? And then there's a whole movement on YouTube about how to replace your screen and a battery. And there's uh, companies out there making tools to be able to get access to them. Apple seems to have bowed to this pressure uh, because ultimately this is leading to government pressure as well, right. which has been threatening to make right to repair legislation. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that I bring it up here is because this has a direct application to enterprise IT. You could argue that in enterprise IT, very rare, you are forced to get your maintenance and repairs from a very restricted subset of sources. 
And in the current environment with subscription licensing, when those licenses fail, you've got no ability to do self-repair or to reuse the product because the license is rescinded. The devices refer to either a dumb or an unusable state and become e-waste effectively. Right. If you've, you know, does the right to repair also affect these products? I mean, at present, it seems like, no, I think most licensing agreements, you don't actually own that infrastructure. You're just kind of renting it, whether you're on a subscription service or not. So um, yeah, that would take some serious legislation or some individual internal changes uh, among vendor practices, which without legislation, I don't see happening because vendors have kind of a fraught relationship with secondary gear. They don't want it undercutting their own prices. Mm. Uh, They'll argue they're trying to keep, you know, counterfeit and shoddy products out of the market. But frankly, I think it's about protecting their bottom line. more than It's it's a bit of both. There was a massive gray market. uh, So where factories in China would make Cisco's products and then they'd make one for Cisco and one for themselves. Right. And then ship the other ones into markets and sell them through the back door. And then Cisco was... um, losing control of, you know, stock and in the market and not yep. able to maintain pricing or re- control over resellers, the quality of the resellers, which was, yep. so yep. there is a case for and against that. But then what happened was counterfeit factories swung into operation. They were using substandard components or shipping junk in, in Cisco boxes, and, you know, and this has happened to HPE and Dell, by the way, and eventually they moved to extinguish the secondhand market on that basis. But with the supply chain problems we're having, maybe, maybe you want not to do that. Right. I think, you know, the vendors have hoped to conflate counterfeit uh, gear and um, gray market gear with secondary gear there. I think you can carve out two separate markets for that. And there are legitimate Mm. secondary market operators. Uh, And given, yes, supply chain constraints, I think there is a role for those, particularly not just for companies wanting to extend the life of their gear or get backup gear or whatever, but also because of the e-waste issue that the secondary market should be more robust. There is definitely a case for it, although it's been largely extinguished in subscription licensing. One part of the value prop for vendors is that. Do keep in mind that for Apple, there was a billion-dollar scam going on in China where uh, repair companies would take the faulty parts and fit them into brand-new phones and then ship them back to to Apple and say, please replace it, and then they'd get repaired and then brand-new components would come out under warranty and then they'd strip them down and then sell the pieces back out again. So... Uh, Apple did actually come to its current policy based on abuse of the previous system. So Mm -hmm. it's not as simple as Apple doesn't want to. This is one of these times where there actually may be good reasons, although they're not immediately visible. Right. Okay. That that does make sense. Yes. Mm. All right, links in the show notes. If you want to find out more, we'll move on. Uh, Identity management provider Okta is opening a retail outlet in an effort to help executives better understand how its ID management platform works. The retail space or quote unquote experience center will cover 6,500 square feet in Manhattan's Flatiron District. So once upon a time, if you were a large enough customer, you used to get flown to corporate headquarters and taken to the experience center or the corporate boardroom. Do you remember that yes. stuff, Drew? I do, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, this kind of feels like that, but taken to a retail space in New York, if that makes sense. Um, That's what I was thinking. Like a lot of these big companies did have these sort of executive briefing centers in their HQs and they looked like, you know, the lobby of luxury hotels. They were very fancy and lots of pastel colors and warm muted shades and nice coffee. And I assume that's what Okta is going to be doing here. uh, I think that's part of it. I think that's the, the general thrust, but it's also a reaction to COVID, of course. I think what they're finding is that getting in front of customers is very difficult. Mm-hmm. You, a lot of customer offices just say, no salespeople, don't, you're not allowed to come. Uh, and even if they, you are permitted, you have to have 
COVID tests within 48 hours and you have to be able to present a valid test result. You may only be able to be in the building for a restricted time or to be in a very restricted part of the building. You may actually want to go to the building, but nobody wants to meet you because they don't ever go to the office. Do you know mm-hmm. that sort of stuff? Yeah. I've list, spoken to people who are complaining that, you know, salespeople who are saying that, but customers don't want to meet me anymore. And I'm going like, they didn't want to meet you before, but now they've got a reason <laughs> to definitely not meet you. But anyway, um, but I think that COVID testing, you know, like if you want to get on a plane, you have to have COVID tests and show it. And you, you have to have, you know, bunches of things if you want to get there. So this to me seems like, you know, well, let's take the demo center to where the customers are and then invite them to join us at three. And then all of that COVID stuff just goes out the door, right? I mean, some of it does for sure. You have a more controlled environment where the folks, you know, inside your retail environment are uh, either tested or quarantined or both regularly, which is, you know, will help soothe the uh, concerns now, of potential people coming in. Yeah, That's right. And of course, you're not in the company offices, you're in an outside space. So as long as you maintain masks and some social distancing and stuff, it's probably okay, but they can do demos and sales calls. And because of course, New York is such a target rich environment, makes sense. That's what I just flagged it for, because that was what it struck me for. In the article, they don't actually mention COVID at all, but I'm betting that that's a big part of it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. My assumption is that it's not going to be a thing where folks can wander in off the street and decide if they want to buy identity <laughs> management. It's kind of like an appointment no. only. Uh, you have to be a VP or higher, et cetera, to come in and, and get the, the treatment. And retail space in New York's Flatiron District might be cheap right now for a six to 12 month lease. <laughs> it might be. It just <laughs> might be. Yes. All right, let's move on to some financial results. First, Cisco, they reported results for their first fiscal quarter of 2022. The company had revenues of $12.9 billion, up 8% year over year, and net income of $3 billion, up 37% year over year. Revenues across all business units were up except for hybrid work, which fell 7%. Yeah, now Cisco told investors a whole bunch of things which didn't really gel, and that's why their process, their share price fell by 9%, but then later recovered to about 7% down overall. So not good results from Cisco. Um, obviously, the rise of 8% in sales from it's finally broken through the $12.5 billion per quarter barrier to reach $12.9 billion, And it's managed to increase its net income by 37% year over year. So even though sales are only up 10%, it's extracting more profit out of it than ever before, which is kind mm-hmm. of bonkers in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, they went on to say that business forward business is great. We've got lots and lots of orders. But then George Notter from Jefferies said that he believes it to be because the order book is getting pumped up by customers getting their orders in, in ahead of Cisco's price increases. So we flagged here that Cisco has told investors that it's got share pricing uh, pricing increases coming in reaction to the supply chain crunch because the supply mm. chain is driving up costs. What capacity they can buy is now being sold at an extra higher prices. Shipping is higher. Warehousing is getting higher, to much more expensive. Um, and investors basically went, okay, so there's more orders in the pipeline now, but that means that there's less orders later. And also the fact that Cisco flagged that the supply chain is now a problem for them. Again, we talked about this over the last six to eight weeks. Some companies are having no problems with supply. Arista notably says it's having no problems at all. And now Cisco is saying, no, our ability to actually get revenue is now being impacted by supply chain. So investors are saying, okay, now's the time to get out, take some profits. Uh, And that's why the share price fell. All right. Uh, Moving on, chipmaker NVIDIA shared results for its third quarter of fiscal year 2022. The company had revenues of 7.10 billion, up 50% year over year, and net income of 2.4 billion, up 84% year over year. So a cracking quarter. 
<laughs> yeah, NVIDIA is on its way to becoming the next trillion dollar company because even though its revenue is sort of, you know, 7 billion compared to say someone like Cisco's 12.9 billion that we just talked about, um, they are valued as a, at a much higher multiple. Cisco's got a very modest valuation. Companies basically don't believe, investors don't believe that Cisco's got much growth in it and nor much revenue, whereas they believe that NVIDIA has got a very fast accelerated growth curve. Um, in particular, its data center chip revenue is $2.9 billion, up 24% sequentially and 55% year over year. Great. And they've been selling strongly to hyperscale customers. Now, my guess here is not only is this the Ampere x86 and also the Tensor Core GPUs, obviously, which they're selling into data centers, they've made a huge push around converged systems to do AI, ML, and graphics loads. And so not only are they selling the GPUs there, they're also selling the CPUs, and of course, since the acquisition of Mellanox and Cumulus, they're now selling the switches and SmartNICs. So right. not at all a surprise that they're going up. They've got more products to sell, but substantially up. 55% year over year is actually a sign of really good growth. Um, it is interesting that NVIDIA is largely selling a lot of software. So it doesn't just sell the hardware. It sells software around those things. At, um, at the conference that they ran last week, they were very big on saying, yeah, 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 we've got these hardware and we've got these servers and we've got these amazing GPUs and we've got this AI processing and we're using, you know, InfiniBand networking to accelerate performance inside of the cluster and all that. But what we also have is this AI, AI Morpheus framework for you to create security tools for the data center. We've got an AI framework for GPU processing. We've got an AI framework to do voice emulation, you know, to, to actually make voices more natural. So, so it's an interesting mix of what NVIDIA is selling. They're not only just selling silicon, they're also selling software, but where their money's coming from right now is silicon. So software was eating the world, maybe not so much now. Well, I think probably the long-term strategy is once you get that silicon in place, then software becomes the fries with that on top, which provides ongoing revenue after you've sold the chip. Well, you, they're not making chips that are you know the same or compatible. They're not making x86 server chips like AMD, for example. Mm -hmm. They're making chips that are uniquely different, AI processors or GPUs or you know Tensor GPUs and so forth. Or And instead of doing Ethernet networking, they've elected to go with InfiniBand. They're still doing Ethernet, but to a lesser extent and so forth. They've got SmartNICs coming and all that sort of stuff. Um, they're not doing the same as everybody else. They are, to some extent, doing something different compared to any of the other you know, Dell, HPE, as server vendors compared to what IBM or Cisco are doing in terms of software and delivering services to customers, completely different approach. Right. Absolutely. Yes, mm. I agree. And they're also starting to carve out a whole new DP or data processing unit market. I think what used to be called SmartNICs. Yeah. Yep. SmartNICs. Well, yeah. And the Mellanox acquisition was probably inspired, I think. Yep. Yeah. It seems like a good buy. Mm. All right, our last story for the day. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Riverbed announced a financial restructuring plan and would get new majority owners led by a private equity firm, Apollo Global Management. This week, Riverbed announced it was filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, and the goal is to eliminate more than $1 billion in debt that a Riverbed has on its books. Yeah, mostly this is just to let you know if you're a Riverbed customer, um, you probably want to be aware that Riverbed is in restructuring because that may affect the services that you um, receive from them and also the products that you may buy. Um, it is owned by private equity, a combination of uh, Toma Bravo and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. So 
Toma Bravo is usually well known for taking companies in, restructuring them and selling them out for a substantial gain in profits uh, on the on the process. But they haven't been able to do it here with Riverbit, you know, just they a sign not, that though. it doesn't always work. Nope. Um, but eliminating a billion dollars in debt, like getting bondholders to give up on a debt at that large on a company is it's going to be a tough ask, considering that in 2014 they paid $3.6 billion to take the company private. Yep. So it looks as if they loaded it up with too much debt when they took it private, extracted the profits too early, and then Riverbed is now stuck and they can't sell it off for the making the second lot of money out of it. Yeah, link in the show notes if you want to read more, but just a heads up, if you are a Riverbed yep. customer, you may want to be aware. Yeah, congrats to the register for finding that. And I should mention it wasn't us that found it. It was uh, I'm linking to a register article for the source. Yep. Yeah, well done. All right, that wraps up the news portion uh, of our show. Stick around for our conversation about SASE and SASE architecture with sponsor Palo Alto Networks. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're diving into Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE, which provides security capabilities like firewalling, web filtering, and more as a cloud-delivered service. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks, and they're here to make the case that when it comes to SASE, how the service is architected matters. Our guest is Jason Georgie. He is field CTO for Prisma Access and SASE at Palo Alto Jason, welcome to the show. So start us off, how does Palo Alto define SASE and, and what services does it encompass? Yeah, Drew, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for having Palo Alto Networks uh, present our vision on, on SASE, if you will. So look, yeah, absolutely. What we're trying to do is, is make this as simple as possible, right? We're, we're trying to get the mindset around if you've got users, it doesn't matter where they happen to be, right? Working either at home, on the go, or in the branch, and they need to access their resources, doesn't matter where they happen to be either, data center, cloud, SaaS, web, where have you, that we can connect them up securely with a single platform-based approach. And we're, we're looking at this from a convergence type perspective, right? So it's combining cloud-delivered security capabilities and SD-WAN with the ability to tie that all together with full end-to-end visibility of the application delivery path using our autonomous digital experience management capability. Because let's face it, right? I mean, just because users are working from home or anywhere else, that doesn't lessen the importance of a good user experience. You know, it's more important now than ever. So when we talk about convergence, we just want to make sure we're doing convergence right and not making it, you know, kind of look like a Wisconsin duck, you know, Wisconsin Dells duck that <laughs> does the whole hybrid, you know, water and, and road situation. So it's doing it the right way. Okay. So there was a lot there. Let's try to unpack it a little bit. Um, sure. Talking about SASE, what, if I'm using the SASE solution from Palo Alto, what kind of services am I getting? I mentioned things like firewall, web filtering, what else is in there? Yeah, so we we look at this from the full suite, right? So when when we kind of went down this path before Gartner even coined the term in August of 2019, we were already doing things like firewalls as service, zero trust network access, integrated CASB, cloud secure web cloud delivered secure web gateway, and SD WAN. Um, now, when we when we acquired CloudGenix as our you know next generation SD WAN platform, mm -hmm. it really rounded out the story. So we make sure that we're copying or covering these the entire set of core components plus as many of, of the recommended components as possible. So we're looking at this from a comprehensive perspective, making sure that if the customer really wants to go all in on the SASE capability, that they're covered with us. So how is SASE different from, you know, a typical VPN or branch deployment where I've already built out a bunch of security appliances, I'm running traffic through that, I'm confident that I'm getting the inspection that I need, why would I want to push all this into the cloud? 
Yeah, you know, it's a good question. It's something we've been working with customers on for a long time, which is really that more direct or efficient path between users and whatever they're accessing. You know, when we think about legacy topologies around VPN, you know, user VPN, all users connect into concentrators centralized in a, in a, a data center or two or three, you know, whatever they have geographically. Um, but that's that's a hairpin, you know, it's a trombone effect. Same with branches. When you, you think of the branch office, all connecting into WAN hubs in a few key areas and then out to cloud, SaaS or web resources, you know, that whole hairpinning thing kills things like user experience and security winds up, you know, getting strained as well when it's all centralized in, in a couple of these locations. There's a lot that has to happen to apply efficient security controls. So we, we took the approach of like, look at this from a distribution perspective, you know, getting your head ends from a remote worker perspective pushed out to the cloud edge, making sure that branches can connect to that, that cloud edge as well, so that not only can they access still resources within the data center, but they have that more direct path to cloud and SaaS and web resources as well. So it's really being able to, you know, kind of turn that, that legacy topology inside out and, and make it as direct and as efficient as possible. So how is Palo Alto making sure that I say as a remote worker here in my office am getting into cloud resources that are close to me as opposed to being backhauled to a central office or, you know, the, the corporate enterprise? Yeah, so, you know, it's really a matter of looking at this from, so we, we connect remote workers into our cloud by an IPsec tunnel. So we've got an endpoint agent that runs on the desktop mm -hmm. that allows them to connect to the cloud service itself, which is where security processing is happen happening. And then from there, uh, based on, you know, wherever that next hop or destination is, data center, cloud, SaaS, or web, now we're going to take that user over fiber transit between their ingress point and egress point to eliminate things like middle mile, vari middle mile variability, uh, best effort internet slowdowns, and things like that. So we're trying to ensure that, you know, user experience is, is there from end to end while you know, ensuring that we have hyperscale services doing the security processing, making sure that there's no compromise on the security posture. So that's ensuring we can do things like zero trust network access across any application type, not just you know, a few apps here and there, depending on the location. Okay, so you just mentioned zero trust network access. That's probably also on our listeners' bingo card. Um, what, <laughs> what does that mean to Palo Alto? Because everyone's talking about zero trust and then depending on you know, who's trying to sell you what, it could mean different things. Yeah, you know, it does. It, it means a little bit something different to pretty much every customer I talk to. But at the end of the day, zero trust is really just no implicit access between a user, however you define that human thing application and a resource. And so, okay, great. Now, what are some of the differentiators and, and approaches to zero trust specifically on the zero trust network access side? You know, th this is a strategy, you know, it, it's not a single product. Now, when it comes to ZTNA, specifically that SASE component, uh, we we can do a lot there to ensure or up level a customer's ability to be successful with their overall zero trust strategy. So we do that by taking you know, what is the standard approach, the the known approach that that's out there and addressed by you know the uh, the typical software defined perimeter or zero trust network access vendors, which is you identify a user, you apply context get device information, uh, role, whatever, authentication status, location, time, all the variables you would want to know about a user and then ensure those are what you want them to be before even checking to see what they're trying to access and allowing that application access through. So you start with that user validation, context, and posture. 
And then what are they trying to access? If it's not allowed by policy, you know, forget it. You know, the show's over. If it's if it's allowed by policy, and okay, are all the requirements then met? Even in terms of you know, uh, you know, adaptive type access, which is uh, a company issued device, managed device versus a BYO device or a location, whatever that is. So ensuring ensuring that all those factors are correct, then then that that application access is granted. But what we do is take it one step further, and this is something unique to our approach, and it's based on our architecture. You know, this isn't a Palo versus vendor A or B thing. It's truly a difference in architecture, and that we can then apply full content inspection of this traffic. So we're doing full inline security inspection of all application traffic, whether it's private app access traffic to a data center or cloud VPC, to the SaaS, to the web, it doesn't matter. We're looking at that for data loss. We're looking at it for threats, including zero days. And then we're constantly monitoring that application access session for changes. Behavioral heuristics are part of what we do. And so we're making sure that if anything changes within that session, we can then take an action to you know, uh, either you know, force the user to reauthenticate or do something to quarantine them, whatever it might be. Because we, if, if something's awry with what that user is trying to access, we need to identify it quickly and ensure that no harm is done. Okay, so that's a significant difference from a typical VPN client where I authenticate once, I sort of land on the network as an endpoint, and then kind of go around and do whatever I want. You're saying session by session, you're doing these not only policy checks, but also monitoring the session as it's happening. Absolutely, absolutely. And and it starts with a default deny. You know, it, so if if we're trying to ensure that no matter what somebody needs to access, it's as granular as you can get, um, as, as granular as single user to single application. That's what we wanna be able to do without fear of transitivity. And so this makes our zero trust network access component you know, very uh, consumable for organizations that wanna use it for their third parties and contractors um, and other types of users that might not necessarily be uh, you know, part of their either employee stack or what even they would still consider today as quote unquote trusted. Because I, I think there's still a lot out there as far as employees being a little more trusted than, than a non-employee user. But the, the reality is if we're calling it zero trust, <laughs> that's really what we're trying to get to is there is no trust. There's no implicit or inherent trust there. Mm -hmm. So if we can break that down and, and ensure that organizations can treat everybody that's accessing a resource as quote unquote external, that's what we're gonna help them do. So this way too, if, you, if you're worried about that insider threat, which most organizations are, you know, and if you think about a typical policy-based access to something, you know, if Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning taught us anything is that identity is just not quite enough. Um, it's the foundation, it's what helps us build these policies. But if you're not doing inline DLP or you're not doing inline threat prevention or inline zero day checking for this application traffic, then you're in trouble. Because most of the organizations out there that, that have a sassy badge on their on their webpage are doing that type of inspection only for the outbound internet security side, right? So they're, they're SWIG and they're CASB. But what about all the other apps that sit within the data center and cloud VPCs or, or IaaS that's out there? You know, we have to make sure the same type of inspe security inspections going on there too, to ensure that if you're not controlling an endpoint or a, a set of credentials get compromised, that we still have layers of defense preventing users from being able to do malicious activity with files, whether it's something they upload to a host or downloading for exfiltration purposes. So one of the things that 
we hear at Packet Pushers, you know, concerns about uh, SASE is first performance. I'm doing a lot of potential inspection in a cloud service, including it sounds like decryption, inspection, re-encryption. Um, you know, I, I had a high-powered appliance with lots of ASICs on my premises to do this before. How am I assured that traffic is going to get to its endpoint in a timely manner, to its destination in a timely manner, if it's running through all these services in a cloud? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question, and I hear it all the time, right? Am I going to compromise on user experience now for the sake of security? And that might not be an option, right? And that's what we certainly saw at the onset of the pandemic was split tunnel VPN traffic, you know, to ensure good user experience of SaaS apps and, right. and critical things that are sitting out there while sending what they could through security inspection. From our perspective, this this can't be a choice anymore. It's it's not doing our customers a favor. It's not doing our listeners right now a favor when they're having to make these tough decisions. So we look at this two ways. One, the cloud architecture piece itself. And that's what I hit on earlier about making sure we can use the cloud's own fiber backbone for transit uh-huh. and, and, and leveraging hyperscale services, right? This is giving us the ability to apply the industry's best SLA. And I understand that a lot of this audience, okay, SLAs, whatever, but but it's it's true that we're putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to this. We're, we've got the industry's fastest SLA with SSL decryption turned on because we're able to take advantage of hyperscale cloud services. But you know, even then, right here, you are trying to t- take our word for it. We tie this all together across SASE, so across Prisma SD-WAN and Prisma Access combined with our autonomous digital experience management capability. That is the fully SASE integrated into our SASE uh, user experience management piece that's looking at the application delivery path end to end. Right. So you mentioned SD-WAN. I always thought of them as separate things. SD-WAN was about better connectivity for branches and SASE was about sort of... uh, essentially endpoint end user security. How are you integrating the two? Yeah, you know, it's kind of like I said before, when we are talking about convergence and doing it right, it's making sure we have a better integrated approach. It's making sure that a customer is not sitting here straddled with an SD-WAN that's doing basic forwarding to a cloud security or cloud delivered security provider with very basic application controls built in. Our approach was to ensure we have full layer seven capability around application traffic steering because three and four isn't enough, right? Layer three and four around packet loss and jitter, that's fine for a lot of legacy apps and things like that. But today's modern applications, you th- those aren't always a good measure for what that, that application's performance not only is or should be, um, but how it's going to operate under actual user context. So by doing something like API-based integration, you know, so true you know, application layer integration between Prisma SD-WAN and Prisma Access, we can get really granular as far as not only application steering to the right place, whether it's going direct to the cloud or, or data center or SaaS app, or even peeling some of that traffic off. When we look at applications, we are able to say, what are the components of that application? Because parts of that application can behave differently and mm-hmm. use different protocols than the entire suite of them. So rather than just you know, bucketizing them all into one, one large group, which a customer can do, right? They can easily say, hey, all my Microsoft Office 365 or M365 apps send through this virtual interface, off it goes. But if you want to get, you know, really granular, you can look at the components of the application and say, this is what 
this is where this particular piece of this traffic should go. Now we're able to do that by through this app ID capability and some of our existing customers will be familiar with that because we've had it around for a long time as part of our architecture. But app ID is going to be normalized and extended in a Prisma SD-WAN here imminently. So that, that level of granularity that we have from an application perspective will not only exist in the you know, firewalling capabilities that we have, whether that's Prisma access or our next-gen firewall capabilities, but also down to the SD-WAN branch. So one last point before we wrap, you also mentioned uh, digital experience management. That is also a big issue, particularly around remote or distributed work where you can't always guarantee that uh, the bandwidth an end user is coming in on is going to be great. So how are you incorporating that into SASE as well? Yeah, you know, and, and this is a very, it's a very, uh, good question to ask. It's something that our customers really need to look into when they are looking for UX management and monitoring tools because they're not all the same. And, and what you want is something that's going to give you context because a lot of tools out there get data, but they don't apply the proper context of what that actual or what your users are going to experience given what is in line between them and the destination. So with a fully integrated ADEM, not only are you able to see the application and, and performance of the application, but by being inside the set or riding alongside the session for each hop along the way, you're able to benchmark things like what, what is optimal user experience given, you know, uh, really no, no issues at all within an infrastructure between the user and the destination versus you know, what is the real user traffic look like, given everything, where they sit, how far they are from their broadband CEO, their ISP they're using, the Prisma Access Security Cloud itself, you know, things like that. We can then combine those measures into what should be a baseline, right? So then now you can score your applications and say, this is what this actually looks like in my environment. So then when something does go wrong, anywhere in that path along the way, then you can quickly identify it, triage it, and, and start remediation activities. So it's really about making sure we have the same visibility and insights across the entire application delivery path. And this now applies to whether it's a remote worker that's, that's off net or from the branch perspective, because ADEM is integrated into our Prisma SD-WAN solution as well. So segment by segment, fully integrated in a Prisma SASE, we get that end-to-end -end visibility, allowing our, our IT teams that are managing and monitoring this to make quick decisions and ensure there's little to no impact observed by the, by the end users themselves. So if I'm listening and I decide I wanna take this for a test drive, is there a way I can play with Palo Alto's SASE? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can we can direct our, our listeners to go to paltonetworks.com slash sassy S A S E. Sign up to do a virtual test drive. You know, in and for those of you that that are already beyond that point or want to just really get into it, look, you determine what your need is, whether it's the hybrid worker, you know, somebody that's off net, um, that that you need to get, you know, secure access to resources and applications, or from a branch transformation perspective, wherever you need to start. It's modular enough to start there. But I think we've got a really good way for you to check it out you know, through that virtual test drive, um, sign yourself up, and there's a load of information out there that will you know, also allow you to build up your own knowledge base around what we're doing from the SASE perspective. All right, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash S-A-S-E or SASE. Well, thank you, Jason, for joining us. Uh, and thanks to Palo Alto for being a sponsor. We are out of time. Uh, but folks, if you like this podcast, you can find many more fine free examples along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.